So this class, um, I've been really excited about it. Uh, it's something that I found to be a fascinating topic recently. Uh, I had the chance to teach on this a little bit over at Faulkner, and I thought it'd be good for us to share some of these things together. A lot of what we're going to be talking about through the course of this class is understanding how we think, but also how our world thinks. Um, just coming out of a different quarter where I was teaching a uh, class down the hallway, that we were trying to figure out why do we fall prey to certain sins? Why are there certain things that uh, catch our minds? Why are things that take us off guard? And how can we approach those with a right mindset? How can we really understand ourselves? And this is kind of uh, going in conjunction with that, but it's understanding how can we make the right decisions when we may not know exactly what to do. Uh, this class is going to cover a lot of different things. Uh, it's going to take a lot of different approaches to understanding how we think and how other people uh, think so that we can be the most effective with the Word of God. Uh, I think it's very easy when we find people that disagree with us or that we disagree with, someone that does something differently, we don't really know how to respond correctly all the time. I think because of our passion and because of our desires that we just kind of want to shut people down sometimes and we don't really want to understand where they're coming from. And that's what a part of this is going to be, is understanding that mindset so that we can teach. Jesus employed these same kinds of teachings. He would try and get into people's minds, into their lives, into their cultures and their societies, and he would help them. He would guide them. He would use them where they were so that he could bring them to where they need to be. And if we can prepare ourselves in the same kind of way, I think that it will be amazing how we can take the gospel into all the world. So that's what the purpose of this class uh, is all about. Uh, I want to begin by going to Philippians chapter 2. I, know, I now realize this says Philippians 1 at the bottom, but we're going to read in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 14. And I want you to pay attention to what Paul says here. His challenge and his admonition to the church in Philippi. And this is uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, if we were just to stop here and we think, all right, Paul, like, I know we're almost in the middle of your book at this point. You've already instructed us on a lot of things about what we should be doing, but you're going to get into this statement. You're going to tell us, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many of us probably fall short just right here in this one simple verse? We do a lot of complaining. We do a lot of grumbling. We do a lot of things when we see stuff around us that we just we don't know how to respond to. Paul's trying to encourage the church here in Philippi. It's time for you to step up. It's time for you to start acting in the right way. Now, one thing you have to realize about the church in Philippi is they've been through a really tough time. Think back when Paul first came to this city. What was he approached with? An opportunity to serve the Lord, but then that also put him right into prison. While he was in prison... He didn't check up. He didn't stop. He kept doing what he needed to do. He kept making the right kind of decisions. And because of that, the Lord blessed him. And Paul comes out of prison, and he goes straight into the city of Philippi, and he even challenges their morals and their ethics. And he's saying, you're going to try and sweep this situation under the rug? You just need to face it. You need to realize what decisions you made, and I'll realize what decisions I made, that I'm not going to back down. I believe that the Lord Jesus is the Christ. And I'll serve him. Regardless of what you say, regardless of what you may punish us with, I'm going to serve the Lord. As Paul takes up this challenge, that's exactly what he's telling the church at Philippi. He says, look, you're about to go through a really tough time. You're living in a world, in a community, in a society that doesn't see Jesus for who he is. 
Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. Some of you are going to lose your life. Knowing that threat is in front of you, how is that going to change the way that you see things? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent. When I think about the term blameless and innocent, the first person that comes to my mind is Noah. Think about the story of Noah. You have an entire world that is corrupt, debased in mind, that are not making the right decisions. God looks down on the world, the created place, and he, he sees everything, that every thought and every intention of man is evil continually. That is the description of the world in which Noah lived, is that they were evil. Yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was found blameless in the midst of a world that was evil. When I think about the terms that Paul is challenging the Philippian church to follow through with, he's saying, you are going to stand out and the world may not look right. The world may not line up with the way that Scripture says, the way that God designed, but that doesn't change the way that we respond. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God. What makes us different than the world is that we belong to the Lord and not ourselves. We are children of God first and foremost, regardless of what the world may say and what the world may do. That needs to be the description of us. So that we may be without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We realize the world today is crooked and twisted. And there's a lot of sins that we are facing today that we think no one has ever faced before because of our technological advances, because of uh, how far our society has reached, how many people are in this world. You look at the amount and different types of sin today and you think, man, this world, it seems just to be, you know, it's on a downward spiral from the beginning of time. But you have to think all the way back to the beginning when sin first entered the world. Think about the sin of Adam and Eve, the first one on the books, the first sin ever. Think about the record at that point. Think about how the world looked knowing that sin was first introduced. Sin has always been a problem. It, and it will continue to be a problem as long as we're on this earth. But what are we going to do about it? He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Although we're in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we have to shine as lights. That has to be our priority. That has to be our objective. Regardless of what the world does, regardless of what new laws may be implemented, what uh, new angles of sin are being brought in, we have to be light shining in the world. And a light has a purpose. Think when Jesus brought in the illustration of light. He said, you are a city set on a hill. And it can't be hidden. But what was the purpose of a city being set on a hill? So that people would turn to glorify God. Being a light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation is not just so that we can look at ourselves, but it's that we may expose the deeds of darkness so that we may dispel the darkness the same way that when Jesus came to this earth. You realize that in John chapter 1, when Jesus set foot on this earth, that he was the true light. And he brought light to all, and the darkness could not overcome it. 
Jesus' purpose was to come in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He was like a root out of dry ground, is how Isaiah describes in Isaiah 53. He didn't belong. There was something different about him, but he brought healing and refreshment. He brought out light. And that is our objective, is to do the same thing. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What we're trying to do is hold fast to the word of life. Our lives on this world are limited. Whatever the span of life may be for each of us individually, we don't know. But it's short in comparison to the existence of the world and eternity itself. Our life is limited, but we realize that when this life is over, we have eternal life waiting for us. So what we do here really does matter, although it may seem short and it may seem limited, that it can make an impact. But the only way that we're going to be able to make the right decisions, the only way that we're going to be able to take the topic of Christian ethics and ethics in general, is we have to consider our lives in light of eternity, in light of the word of life, so that we can make the right decisions, so that we can go and do more. That's the premise of this class. That's the premise of Christianity. That is our goal. That is our challenge. Let's live as lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Let's not put a basket over it. Let's not hide our heads. Let's find what is there so that we can address it correctly. That's going to be the purpose of this class, and I hope that's the ongoing goal of each one of us as Christians, is that we study God's Word so that we may live it out fully and completely, and that we may teach others to do the same. So that's what we're going to try and accomplish together. And I want to put these verses in front of us that they may be a bit of a theme for us as we go even further. So... uh, Here's what we're going to do. Here's going to be the way that I want to talk about things um, over the course of this class. Today we're just going to talk about just the introduction of where are we right now when it comes to morals and ethics in our society. Uh, Next week we're going to get into a little bit more technical, technical way of thinking about how do people think. I love categories. I love being able to put people in boxes because it helps me. It helps me be able to organize my own thoughts. And if we can do the same thing with understanding why people think the way that they do, I think we'll probably be a lot more effective instead of just putting everybody in one single category. We hear a lot today, and we're going to look at this in just a moment, that are morals absolute? Can we make a call as Christians and say, this is true and that is untrue. This is the way we should do things. This is the way we ought to do things, and this is what we should avoid. Our society doesn't feel the same way. They don't feel like there's moral absolutes. They don't feel like there, there is a way for you to tell people yes and no, right and wrong. It is more subjective. So we're going to make a case. Just, just being able to look at the facts in our society, but we're going to compound that with understanding a moral God. I know Justin just taught a class on apologetics, and one of the, the topics that he was dealing with, because we dialogued a little bit back and forth, is understanding that a moral God exists. Where do our morals, where do our way of thinking come from? Well, it comes from God being who he is. Goodness extends from him. So if we can understand God and his morals, then I think we'll be able to help ourselves a lot more. And that's going to lead us to understanding how to make moral decisions. If we can put all of those things together and we start organizing our thoughts, we'll probably be able to face some of the biggest challenges of the world in a more systematic way. And that's going to lead to this, making moral decisions, um, how to, to do that better. 
And here's going to be some of the topics that I want to discuss. Um, we might be able to get to all of them. I'm hoping that we do. Uh, I know different stuff comes up, especially this summer and uh, different projects and all. But here's going to be some of the main things I want to talk about. And part of it's going to be observing our society. You look at the topic of abortion. It's fascinating how that has turned right now in our time. I'm going to be excited later on to find out how that will change even more, how get that God's word will begin to continue the work in the world and maybe dispel this atrocity. But why are people supporting it? What are some of the arguments that are out there? How can we be better at addressing them? Homosexuality, uh, money ethics, just making the right decisions with what we've got. Even immigration. I know that's one of the, the things that people get caught up in right now that I think it's important for us to talk about. Understand the death penalty, some of the arguments there, and then wrapping everything up. So this is my plan. Uh, depending on how each one of the topics goes, it might go another week or so. We'll see if we can get to all of them or not. But this is my plan. This is what I want to accomplish is we're trying to figure out how to think in the right way with God's word. This may not appear in the best way. You may not be able to see it, and that's okay. But I want to describe to you uh, what you are looking at. There was a Gallup poll that went out. And it realized this about uh, ethics. It just kind of asked people, where do you think that we are in a society with our morals? How would you describe our morals in America right now? According to this uh, one chart, and you can see a little bit of it, uh, if you can read it, 49% of Americans say the state of moral values in the U.S. is poor. I think we would agree with that, right? But why is it 49%? Why is it that half of our society believes that morals are poor? What does that really mean? Does that mean that, you know, as a society that we're just failing all around? Is it that people don't really think that we're failing? Is it we're better off than, you know, we really consider ourselves? Maybe our morals are actually higher. Maybe we hold different values that are really helping people. Why do you think that it's 49%? I think that's absolutely fascinating how people are reading our society. 49% say it's poor. And uh, if you go to the opposite extreme, 14% say they are excellent or good. And that sticks out to me, right? I mean, I have to start thinking, all right, who's responding to this? What are they thinking that they're excellent and good? Now, you're looking at 15%, which is small. But I still struggle with 50% of our society is saying that morals are excellent. Why is that the case? California. <laughs> I don't know. Any other observations? I, I know it's auditorium class, and uh, it's hard sometimes to get uh, discussion out there. Um, this is my first time teaching it, so let's uh, prove it wrong. So, yes. Okay. So just looking at the data in general, how many people did they ask? Uh, how many people are responding to this? Could be limited. Could be a, a more coming from a specific region. Um, could be the case. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, I think that's an excellent observation is that um, I think there's a lot of people, and maybe even us at times, we think everything is okay until our eyes are opened. I mean, you think, all right, so using your illustration of, all right, how many people in America claim that they are a Christian? Well, then you narrow that scope even further and say, okay, well, how many are practicing Christians? And then you go even further, how many of you are practicing Christians according to God's word, the, the doctrines and the standards that, that we know and that we understand? That number starts going down. I mean, you look at some of the Bible studies that we may have with people as we teach them, and they may have one set of beliefs until we teach and we show what scriptures say. And I don't know if you've been in a conversation with somebody where they say, after reading the scriptures, I've never seen that before. Well, I thought you were a practicing Christian. I thought you'd been in Christianity for a long time. I thought you were brought up in the church. I thought you were brought up around these things, but they miss one. And we do it too. There'll be something that we're reading. You'll hear a lesson. You'll think, I've never heard it that way, or I've never seen that. I, I didn't know that was the case. We all do that, and so maybe that's our society. They just don't know, and they need to know. Absolutely. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. I saw one more hand, I thought. Yeah. And so that's the challenge too, is what, how, do you, how do you define what is good? But then maybe they don't understand what a moral is. <laughs> how can you really say that something is good or bad if you don't fully understand morals and values so that you can live it out, um, which is ethics? Uh, let me take this a step further. Now this goes out from the Barna Group. If you haven't seen anything from the Barna Group, excellent research of them looking at people. They break it down a little bit more. Uh, according to different generations about how they view things. And here was the question. It was a part of a longer survey. And they said, um, how, do you, how do you agree with this statement? Do you agree with it? Um, whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Okay? Let me read it one more time just in case you can't read uh, that top part. Whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Here's some of the responses. Um, and you kind of base it off of uh, baby boomers. We know that's a very specific uh, age gap there. And you got elders, which are the uh, ones living above that. So the elder group says um, either agree somewhat or agree strongly, 39%. And it starts changing uh, as you go down. Baby boomers, if you put those together, 47%. And it just keeps growing steadily as you go down. What are some observations from this that you see? And even if you get into the practicing Christians, people with no faith and other faith, um, if you can see those numbers, I know that's kind of hard. But uh, what do you notice? What are some trends? Find some observations there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? We hear that phrase a lot. And if we really start applying that, you see that, that slope, that change, 
what's being taught or what was being neglected. You know, I mean, it'd be hard if you start getting into it. But I mean, if we just look at uh, the body of believers that we have right here and we start talking about different things that we teach or that we do in the church, could we nail some of those things down? Is it something being actively taught or is it something not being taught that's the problem? I mean, it's an observation, something to think about. Yes, Ms. June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you're trying to figure out what is truth, um, if you have people in a society that say there is no truth, then why would I listen to you saying that there is? I don't believe that there is truth. I, don't be- I get to decide it. It's relative to who I am. So why would I come and sit in a place that's going to tell me what to do or put me in a box and hem me in? That's where they start responding. That's where they start thinking. We got to think, well, how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to help them? Um, but it, you know, it is growing um, with the millennials, and then we've got another generation. This was a little bit earlier of a um, of a survey that went out, so it doesn't have uh, what's called Generation Z now, and they're still trying to figure out what that generation actually is. But uh, just looking at this, but you go even further and you think about people with no faith. They're like sheep without a shepherd. We have something to offer. We have truth. We have an insight into something more that is outside of us. And there's a lot of people that are looking for it. Although these people may claim, all right, there is no truth. I get to decide what it is. In their search for no truth, they're still looking for answers. I do believe that. And that's what we have to offer with God's word is a truth and insight into the world, into ourselves, and the world beyond. I mean, if we're just going to look at our, our actions, how many actions do we make that are a result more on our emotions than on facts? Make a, a certain decision. Um, if you're going to do this or this, you're going to start a new job, you're going to go this next stage in your life. Um, how many of those are out of the facts of this is better for me, this is good, or I don't know, that would be a new venture, that would be something different. You know, thinking about it emotionally versus defined facts or data, whatever that may be, how people are making decisions. And that's just talking about decisions of, you know, what I'm going to do this or this uh, in life. But what about something even more that holds more value like morals? 
if people are going to make those kind of decisions, well, that's just how I feel for the day. You're going to stake what you're going to do off of how you feel. Now, and I know this is being a little... Um, the further we go in, the more that we're going to see some of these big things. Okay, We're just kind of getting a landscape right now. But the more that we're going to get, go in, we're going to start adding, what would you do in this situation? I mean, you look at those big topics that we're going to get to. There's a lot that's going to go into that. But even small day-to-day decisions, that's where ethics really comes in. It's, it's taking your stance on morals and determining how you're going to live those out. I mean, we're, we're faced with those kind of challenges all the time. Uh, are you going to live by your morals? Are you going to live by your ethical standards? Or are you going to do something else? Um, so I was at, let's see, it was Saturday. Kenley and I went to Home Depot, and I parked next to the uh, buggy rack. And we got out of the car, and I was going to grab uh, one of the carts, and I was going to go inside. And one of the carts there at, um, at Home Depot had a couple of uh, Home Depot bags filled with all kinds of electrical equipment. Uh, there were breakers in there. Each one of them were like $10 each. You know? And uh, there's breakers in there. There's equipment to wire an entire house just left there. And so I stood there and I looked around thinking who, somebody parked right here and they're about to get all this out. Nobody showed up. So I put Kenley in the buggy. I took her inside and uh, dropped off the stuff. I don't know how long that had been sitting there. I don't know if people really realized or what, but think about how many people may have walked by and made a decision. What will I do with this? They could have put it in their car. They could have taken it. They could have come inside and they could have returned it for its value. You know, I came in, I want to return these things. Looking for an owner. I mean, just a small thing like that, you're faced with decisions. You know, and it caught my attention that I was thinking about this class, thinking, you see a situation like that, and how many of us would fail in other areas that we didn't make the right decision? Well, because of our morals, well, I'm not going to steal. I didn't buy this. It's not mine. I'm not going to take it. I want to return it back to somebody. All of that has values and morals that we put into it. But if we live in a society that they don't understand what is true value, what is a moral, what is the right thing to do, it's how they feel for the day of what they would do with those possessions. All of this goes into a statement like this of that you can know truth. It's what you discover. If you take it a step further, here's some other questions. Every culture must determine what is acceptable morality for its people. This is where it gets a little more difficult. As we think about America and the laws that we have in place, what do we do when we go into other societies? Now, a wake-up call for me culturally was when I went to South uh, Korea. I went last summer with my father-in-law, and they have a lot of different standards on things. The way that they just respond is all about honor and shame. And their society is driven by honor. So you may do something that brings about dishonor. I was sitting in worship service, and um, I had my legs crossed. And one of the, our little translator, and he's like this tall, little translator, came up to me, sat down next to me, and he said, don't show the bottom of your foot. That's disrespectful. That verges on immoral. Uh, I was standing up in worship, and of course my hands were in my pocket, and he came up again and said, don't you do that. <laughs> and so he said, that's disrespectful. I learned a lot of things just on a small scale in another society, what is disrespectful. Anyone that's traveled outside of America, you, you, you start finding those things very quickly. And so when it's bigger issues, what do you do? Okay, so take the, the topic of capital punishment. Our society has different rules that are in place. What, what would constitute a reason to employ capital punishment? What about a society that has different things? 
can one society tell another society what is right and what is wrong? If everything is you know, relative, if everything is subjective, then what has America to do with South Korea? You know, it's things like that, that if society is going to go that way and they think, well, it's whatever you want and whatever you decide, can other societies even dialogue with one another? What will that really lead to? What kind of relations would we have um, if everything is up in the air? And that's kind of where things are right now. Uh, to another point, the Bible provides us with moral truths, which are the same for all people in all situations, without exception. Look at the response there. It's kind of middle of the road. People don't really know uh, what to do with that. I mean, that is a, a true objective statement. The Bible provides us with moral truths which are the same for all people in all situations, regardless of society, regardless of culture, whatever else you want to mix in there. People don't really know what to do with that. They don't know if the Bible is culturally driven. Right? Don't, haven't you heard some of those discussions just in general? Take First Corinthians chapter 11, talking about head coverings. Okay, that's one of the main ones we go to. Well, that's a cultural thing. What about women's roles in the church? What about... Um, teaching on salvation, things like that. Is it determined by society? Is it determined by a certain group of people? Or is it firm and solid for all people, regardless of where you come from, regardless of where you are? Those are the, the things that we are dealing with and things that are in front of us. Moral truth, is it absolute or is it relative? Those numbers continue to grow, and people keep responding. And I'd be glad to share these with you uh, in a different uh, context if you'd like to see them. But I wanted to show all of this in this uh, point right here just for us to think about. People don't really know what to do. And I think that they are looking for answers. And look at some of these trends. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of adults agree with that. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. I think that's probably what, uh, one of the bigger things that we're struggling with right now is how do you talk to someone that disagrees with you? If you haven't watched any kind of things that have popped up in the news or on YouTube or whatever where you've got people that are just in shouting matches because they're not listening to one another because it doesn't matter. You can't tell me that I'm wrong. You can't say that you're absolutely right. How do, you, how do you deal with that? Um, to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. The highest goal of life is to enjoy it as much as possible. People can believe whatever they want, as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. And just all of those statements, how people are responding to them, this is opening up doors, hopefully, for us to dialogue. But it should also make us very aware of how much work there is to do um, in people's minds and in people's hearts. So I wanted to look at the facts, just look at where we are, and let's take this a little bit further and consider God's word. Let's just think generally for a moment. What does it mean to be happy? What, what does that mean? What does it mean to be happy?
Okay, so yeah. Okay, so depending on if they're a Christian or non-Christian. For a Christian, it should be, well, I'm serving the Lord here and hopes of heaven. Non-Christian, it could be possessions. could be searching after money. What else? What does it mean to be happy? Okay, at peace with yourself. One of the things about God's commandments from the very beginning he has always wanted us, his commandments have always taken our best interests into mind. Well, he created the order in that way. I find it fascinating, you go to the Old Testament commandments that we look down at and we think 613 commandments that they had to follow. Man, that's a lot. You know, he, was he really that strict about don't touch this, don't eat that, don't, don't be in association with this? And we think, man, that's, that's just overbearing. What was its purpose? Part of it was God saying, because I said so. But that wasn't all what it was, it was about. Other parts were, this is good for you. The reason why you don't touch this, you don't associate with this, is because it could cause harm to you. You could take the dietary laws of the Old Testament, you could live by them strictly, you could go into any part of the world and live, health, uh, live a healthy life. You look at things that science is discovering now that God's word had already had into place. Cleansing laws, things like that. Uh, it's an apologetic argument about showing God's existence, that he knew all these things before we did. God has always wanted us to live the best possible life. And if we do, we can find peace with ourselves. If I follow God's commandments, it avo it, I avoid a lot of pitfalls. Right, Because we can look back in our life and we can think times where we didn't live according to God's law, how bad of a world did we live in? Personal world. I think back to before I was a Christian. Making terrible decisions. I think after the fact of becoming a Christian, making terrible decisions, I don't want to go back to that life. The life that I live now has more fulfillment. It gives me more peace. I'm not just wavering back and forth thinking, I just don't know what's going to happen next. I have confidence, I have faith, I have hope. We can be at peace with ourselves. I think that's an important thing. What else? That's our driving force. We want to be happy. What are we willing to do and still maintain our happiness? Right. 
And what's cool about Christianity that really gives us that true joy, I think that's right, is that progression of, it's not just what makes me happy, it's what brings about true joy. If you look at somebody in society that says, all right, I'm going to make every decision I can to pursue money and power. Okay, we may be at that stage in our life where we might be pursuing, trying to get more money, but what a Christian will think is, I would like to have more money so that I can do more. Think about that. You know, I, I want to go and have a better job so that I can give back more, so that I can, I can release it. It's perspective. That brings about true joy. But if that was my only purpose, money became my God, I would have no room for any other God. Paul's perspective on life. I mean, just in the book of Philippians, I, I love it because you know you go from Philippians one twenty one for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Philippians one verse twenty seven, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Same man that's later on in Philippians chapter four is going to tell us, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. But before you get to verse thirteen, you have to start in verse five and work all the way through. That he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Rejoice, the Lord is at hand. Give your request over to God. Give everything to Him through prayer and thanksgiving and the peace of God which guards your hearts and minds will be yours in Christ Jesus. Think on the right kind of things, Philippians 4, 4 verse 8. Then He goes on, He says, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. And then that's when He gets to, it doesn't matter if I've been brought up or I've been brought down, whatever the situation, I've learned to be content. I can do all things through Him and it strengthens me. Paul's perspective on life teaches us a lot. Paul knew how to abound, and when he was abounding, he was doing whatever he could. It's the same one that says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, I worked and I strove so that I would not be a burden to any of you guys. I worked so that I could do more. I have become all things to all men that by all means I may save all, some. Paul says, whatever it takes, I'll do it. Whatever it takes for us to be light shining in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we'll do it. And that's what this all has to deal with when we deal with our ethics and our morals. Are we living them out? And can we teach others to do the same thing? Can we help them go beyond what makes them happy or what they think is going to bring about happiness so that we may teach them what is true joy? One author made this statement. He says, morality matters because most people when they are genuinely honest with themselves, associate doing well in life with being a good person. People want to be good. Um, 
there are people, but rarely will you find someone that says, I just want to be, I just want to make the worst decisions I possibly can in life. But most people want to choose what is good. They want to choose what is going to bring them happiness. Nobody wants to bring about pain in their life. They want something else. Luckily, we have something that goes beyond this physical world that will bring about more happiness than we can even understand. When you get to uh, wisdom literature, uh, as we're going to close for the morning, I want to think about Psalm chapter 1. When you look in the Old Testament with different portions of wisdom literature, there's a gateway that you have to enter through before you get the rest of it. Um, Two examples, one in Psalm chapter 1 and the second one in the book of Proverbs. You have to be the right kind of person on this world. God tells us that over and over again. If you can make the right decision to be the right kind of person and you see the challenges coming your way, you will find true happiness. Psalm chapter 1, here's what he says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its, leaves, uh, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff. The wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's what it takes. Here's what he's telling us. Blessed is the man who does not take advice from evil men. Where's your standard come from? Uh, one of my favorite stories is Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Uh, when the divided kingdom happened in the Old Testament. Rehoboam had some older men that came to him that were giving him some advice that he didn't like. So what did he do? He went to a group of younger men, his peer group, and he asked them for advice. And it's exactly what he wanted to hear. If we're going to start making the right kind of decisions, we have to start asking the right kind of people. And we have to seek advice, not of the world, but of God. Blessed is the man who does not associate with the practices of sinners. Not just looking for advice and trying to gather wisdom, but following in the steps. If we're making ethical decisions, we're trying to decide what we should or should not do. Are we associating with the wrong kind of things? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, the world has gone after the creation instead of the creator. He goes through this list of they've given themselves over to this, this, and this, and this. The last thing he says in Romans chapter 1, not only are the people that practice these things outside of God's will, but the ones that give approval to it are just as accountable. Blessed is the man who's not become a worthless man. A tree planted by water. Finally, Blessed is the man who is concerned about God's will and not his own. As we dive deeper into this topic, our goal is to find God's will in all things. But we may be posed with certain challenges where our will and God's will may clash. We may be posed with certain challenges where we have no idea what God's will is in this moment. So what will we do 
And how can we make the best decision possible? All of these things matter, and that's our challenge. Appreciate you guys. Thank you for your comments. Looking forward to next week.